Looking for the latest perspectives to help simplify changing market conditions? Go to Nationwide, one of America's largest financial services companies. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, FINRA member, Columbus, Ohio. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. This is a joy, and as we all migrate over the river and through the woods, it is important to understand that Blinder of Princeton will grace the door of grandchildren. We speak to him before he celebrates Thanksgiving. He is the former vice chairman of the Fed and, of course, always and forever with his Princeton University. Alan Blinder, your book is wildly accessible. To review, folks, there is Milton Friedman and Anna Schwartz, a thousand pages, maybe 800 pages. There's Alan Meltzer, 3,000 pages. This is, whatever your politics, the readable book of 400 pages on a monetary and fiscal history of the United States. Alan, how did you keep the book so short? What did you have to do to keep it under 500 pages? It's a, it's a it's a very fair question. I think what you have to do is be the editor in chief. Uh, I do not have every detail that you could imagine. You know, if you read, look at Alan Melser's book, you can almost go FOMC meeting by FOMC meeting and see what everybody said. Uh, sad, I know. I was going to say sadly. I don't think it's sadly. You don't find that here, but you do find uh, the basic storyline of what was going on with monetary policy and fiscal policy, by the way, and what were the big issues of the day and how were they resolved and sort of where we think right. we have answers were those good decisions or bad decisions. To, to me, the singular distinction right now is your chapter 14 where you say, all together now, it was unthinkable for Alan Greenspan to comment on the dollar. And with the various crises, the once-in-a-lifetime crises we've enjoyed, we now have a Fed in bed with the Treasury talking about the dollar and, and, frankly, social policy as well. Where do we go from our present altogether now? Well, I think in time, this is not happening right away, but in time, you're going to see more of a separation between the Fed and the Treasury, in that sense, back towards the traditional uh, uh, system in the United, at least in the United States, not around the world, by the way, but in the uh, in the United States, the pa- the pandemic crisis just insisted that the Treasury and the Fed, um, you know, snuggle up together. Well, that's a, that's a bad metaphor. <clears throat> work towards the same goals, really. And, it, right. and not have any distance showing between the right. two of them. There were uh, liquidity facilities that the Fed created, lending facilities that the Fed created, backstopped by the Treasury. That kind of cooperation was dictated by the circumstances. Hopefully, we all think we're going to get back to right. normal. 
Well, back to normal was Vice Chairman Blinder speaking, and white smoke came out of the chimney in advance to let people know what was going to be said. Is there too much Fed speak today, Alan? I don't think so. I mean, an elusive but reasonable goal, but it's elusive, uh, is to get the Fed speaking with one voice. That's not so easy when there are 19 members on the FOMC, but it's not been too bad. I mean, there are other committees around the world that are speaking with many more conflicting voices than the FOMC uh, does. But, you know, my view, people have often criticized the uh, tendency to speak too much. And my view is if you've confused people by speaking too much, say more so they're not confused anymore. And by the way, without, without any advice from me, Jay Powell does that. When he right. sees that the markets and other people are getting it wrong, he speaks up again to help them get it right. Alan Blinder, you're talking to finance wannabes at Princeton, and that's a wonderful and, and, and good thing. As you mentioned, Chairman Powell and others, including Vice Chairman Brainerd, try to speak in a safe manner, getting out to an ex-post reality where they can react. The financial media and frankly, much of Wall Street is now in a parlor game of futures, trying to find not only the path up to a terminal rate, but then to game a pivot to a more accommodative stance. You and I have right. never seen this. How do we extricate ourselves from this silliness? Well, I think you, the Fed will extricate itself uh, from, by, by its actions and its words. Remember the Jackson Hole speech of uh, Chair Powell. The whole purpose of that was to shake out of the market's heads the notion that this would be a quick peak in the Fed funds rate, and then it would start coming down right away. I mean, he said very, he made it very clear that that was not going to happen, and we don't think that's going to uh, happen either. Uh, we're not going to get rid of the constant, incessant drumbeat of disparate chatter about the Fed coming out of market people. You know, that's their constitutional right, uh, so to speak. And they will say what they say. But the clever people will keep their eye on the ball and, uh, and right. filter through a lot of that noise and pay attention to what's really coming out of the Fed's mouth. And that mainly means the Fed chairman's mouth. Alan Blinder, one final question on your majesty of 40, 50, 60 years of Fed policy. There's the unknown unknowns out there like Dr. Alarian would speak of. And one of the great unknowns, thinking of the laureate Paul Romer, is the effect of technology on Alan Blinder's economy. Do we actually really know what technology is doing to us right now? We most definitively don't. Uh, one of the things, you know, economists aren't that great at forecasting, period. But one of the things we really cannot forecast, and it's not just us, nobody can forecast to your question, is the sort of changes in the long run trend of productivity. These things happen now and then, not every year, not every two years, but they do happen and they almost always hit us by surprise. And in some cases, even looking back over years or decades, we don't, still don't understand quite what in the world happened. You know, the 90, 1995 acceleration of productivity, I think we understand that it had to do with companies learning how to use all those computers they had hanging around. But the 1973 plus slowdown, we still don't understand. Here we are in the year 2022. And, you know, productivity growth just slowed down and we don't know why. 
I, I, I will not mince words, folks. Checking it at under 500 pages, a monetary and fiscal history of the United States from a time of John F. Kennedy is without question the most readable Fed history I've seen, of course, from Alan Blinder of Princeton University. Alan, thank you so much for joining us uh, before dinner with said grandchildren. Seeking timely market and economic updates to help guide client conversations? Look to Nationwide. Nationwide makes simplicity a priority for financial professionals by offering easy access to timely perspectives on changing market conditions, so more time can be focused on helping clients keep their financial plans on track. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, FINRA member, Columbus, Ohio. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication, it's fortitude, and it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years, and it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. Right now, one of the other stories out there is the ping pong ball known as oil. Jeffrey Curry provides leadership at Goldman Sachs. And I can only think of the great Adam Siminski at Deutsche Bank years ago. Here's a guy who actually goes into the Excel spreadsheets of figuring out supply and demand. Jeff Curry, what do your Goldman Sachs Excel spreadsheets say about oil price next year based off the mystery of global demand? Well, we're definitely bullish come next spring, but what happens between now and next spring, that path is highly uncertain. You have China COVID cases surging, so you're getting forced lockdowns that were not planned. Um, which is impacting demand up to about 1.2 million barrels per day. Coincidentally, the same size as the OPEC cut. So, you know, I think that's important development there. First time ever OPEC ever cut in anticipation of a demand loss. And then you have the G7 price cap, which just they keep rolling the dial and it gets milder and milder every day. You know, it's you know least enforceable <clears throat> through shipping insurance, and then you also have the cap coming out at 65, right. 70, well above the 60 that really put the clamp on them. Let's go back to your Chicago microeconomics. What is the elasticity or responsiveness of demand if China wakes up and moves forward and comes out of COVID? How rapidly will that demand pick up when and if? Well, I mean, that's why, you know, we're sticking to our guns of $115 price target for next year, because when they do come out, um, they're going to put a lot of pressure, not only on oil, but the entire commodity complex. Um, and you can think about, you know, 
2022 as really being in an environment in which the second largest economy in the world, the largest commodity consumer in the world was hibernating. So I think you're absolutely spot on. It's a game changer. Now, their base case is that, hey, they're making the preparations today to reopen into Q. But what did we learn in Hong Kong and Taiwan is that eventually it spirals out of control. The cases get, you know, go up too quickly and then you get a forced reopening. Right. And I think there's a lot of fear of that happening right now. One of the great realities is you pull an all-nighter at the University of Chicago, Curry teaching micro at Chicago years ago. You do that at Ed DeBevix. Lisa Bramwitz, very familiar with the retro diner in Chicago. So the, la- the, the last from Chicago greets her colleague. All right. No need to, to sort of relive those moments ahead of Thanksgiving. Jeff, I am wondering, though, when you talk about the supply demand dynamic and demand picking up with China, on the supply side, how much of Russia's oil has actually been taken off the market given the refineries in India and the exports over to Europe? I, I mean, it's relatively small. It's somewhere in that, you know, three to 400,000 barrels per day. You know, our expectations, it grows modestly uh, as the sanctions begin to take place and you have frictions and other issues involved. Um, but, you know, it's nowhere near as large as what people anticipated. But the offset on that is the investment across the space is far less than what people anticipated. Look at drilling in the U.S. Expectations of U.S. shale have been ratcheting down. Decline rates in non-OPEC ex-U.S. beginning to set in. So the supply problem or the underinvestment thesis, what we call the revenge of the old economy, is actually much stronger than we thought six months, a year ago. And again, it's not just an oil story. It's everything in the commodity space. This is really important, Jeff. Because a lot of people think that we've already seen the supply shock. We've already seen so many barrels taken off the market because of the sanctions on Russia. What you're saying is that's not true, that we have yet to see the true supply constraints that have come from a lack of investment in the shale patch, a lack of investment by oil majors around the world, and now potentially some sort of disruption with Russia if they don't comply with the price caps being imposed by G7 allies. Is that your idea? When will it kick in, the supply constraints that you predict? This is not a, you know, a tactical trading view. I mean, two years ago, in October of 2020, we called for a commodity super cycle, and we still stand by that view. And a commodity super cycle is not an upward trend in prices. It's spike after spike after spike. And this is going to go on and on until we have adequate investment to be able to grow supply. You need to grow um, hydrocarbons and until you have enough of green energy to be able to meet global demand. Right now, 81% of global energy still comes from hydrocarbons. You can't go to zero there and expect the other 20% to carry you. It's got to be an energy transition and we need that investment. And then to do the green investment, you need the metals. You need the copper, the the nickel, lithium, cobalt, silver. You need all of those minerals to be able to invest in the green capex to be able to solve the the long-run decarbonization problem. So this is not a near-term tactical view. We just came off the back of one of the spikes that was well underway before before the events in Russia. And we'll probably see another spike in 2023 as China begins to, to reopen. But in terms of solving this problem, it requires large scale capital investment and the tunes of trillions of dollars and we're not even close. In fact, we haven't even scratched the surface yet. Although, By the way, uh, the one point I want to say is 
This cycle is no different than the ones that we saw in the 70s and 2000s. It's the same kind of commodity super cycle. Um, and what actually I want to make a point. Yeah. What preceded the 70s? The nifty 50 new economy. What preceded the 2000s? It was the dot com boom. What preceded this one? The fang boom. That's what we call the revenge of the old economy. New economy takes all the capital from the old economy, starves it of the investment it needs to grow the supply base, um, which then shifts you into this super cycle environment. On the flip side, uh, what do you say is the revenge of the supply demand dynamic that when you hit $123, $125 a barrel on WTI, demand destruction really comes into play. And we learned that over the past couple of months. How much does that cap where oil prices could go? Well, it depends on where the dollar is trading. Um, you know, obviously in a really strong dollar environment, you know, the, the prices that many countries around the world experience were all-time highs. While in the U.S., in a real term, the all-time high is somewhere around 190 back in 2008. Um, and we reached 130. It wasn't even close. But for Europe, pound sterling, Japanese yen, and many of these other currencies around the world, they experience all-time high prices. So, um, you know, to answer that question, yeah. you end up having to ask, where is the dollar trading? Now, I think the key view here in, in 2023 is, you know, you've seen a big run-up in the dollar. As we see growth start to materialize in China and other parts of the world, we would expect the dollar to begin right. to taper off, and then you could open it up more for dollar-denominated commodities. But the big event in 2022 was not the fundamental side of the commodities, but it was the dollar. Jeff, I want to jump to the Chinese wall here, and I want to go from Jeffrey Curry out to Neil Mehta. You've got, as any other firm has, a sell side looking at individual companies. How do you link your world and these constraints that lead to a higher Brent crude barrel over to their world, which is single stock selection, like his call, stunning call on ExxonMobil? Um, you know, when you look at the uh, way the equity's been trading, they've been looking through this yes, noise yes. In, in the commodity price because they're beginning to see that long-term story. And by the way, Exxon versus Microsoft exemplifies this revenge of the old economy story. You know, Tom, you've been doing this as long as I have. How many times have you seen Microsoft, the largest company in the world, and how many times have you seen Exxon, the largest company right. in the world? You go back to 2000, Microsoft on top, Exxon nowhere right. to be found. And then you, you didn't invest in oil, and then you had that super cycle. 2010, yeah. Exxon on top, Microsoft on the bottom. Jeff, and reverse, in reverse. I've got eight it's, other questions, but we don't have time for it. Jeffrey Curry, thank you so much with Goldman right. Sachs there. dive into it right now and what we do is we don't kill two birds with one stone we kill two turkeys with one stone giving mm. you the thanksgiving angle we do that with troy gayeski chief market strategist fs investments with a ton of experience of global wall street and new york wall street troy before we get to your 60 40 comments i want to talk to you about the state of hedge funds given the stunning year we've had how is 80 20 2 and 20 doing how are they doing this year yeah, so it depends on the strategy, Tom. I mean, it's actually been a very good year for multi-strategy solutions, whether they're daily 40 act or whether they're the classic QP structures. Um, there's been big dispersion across markets, yes. particularly if you look at rates versus currency, or you look at uh, trade opportunities like shorting uh, mortgages versus treasuries. So that's been a very attractive place to be. 
Um, systematic trend followers have also had a very strong year. Uh, there's been huge trends, as you know, whether it's the dollar or commodities or rates moving higher. Right. Um, and, and the strategies that struggled the most, of course, have been the growth-oriented long-short equity strategies that you know, got a little too over their skis in terms of growth and go-go growth and perhaps got a little too involved in privates at elevated valuations. So, you know, in general, we think, you know, liquid multi-strategy solutions continue to make sense. Uh, you know, in, if you're going for income, you can look at things like FSCO, which we recently listed, which has income plus right. uh, appreciation potential that trades at a discount to NAV. Um, so lot, lots to do in the hedge fund space, lots to do in the alternative space. And when you look at 6040 in the heart of your note, we've had a lot of different conversations of bond price up, yield down. Is the big shock next year that 6040 comes back with a vengeance? Yeah, so coming back with a vengeance would be a very strong term. I, I think one of our major themes, you know, our major theme for this year has been protect capital, don't be a hero, be in the Northwest quadrant, the efficient frontier, right? Accept lower risk and either get a total return from income or through multi-strategy solutions. As we move through this cycle, uh, the next theme over the next several years will be, you know, cash flow is king in that you don't need price appreciation to make a reasonable return. As long as you don't have a horrific uh, recession where default rates skyrocket, your loss adjusted yield on cash flow should be pretty attractive. So that doesn't mean it's time to dramatically ramp up risk or, or rotate back aggressively in the 6040. What it means is if you're going to accept risk in your portfolio and be in that northeast quadrant, make sure you're doing it in strategies that have ample income and that can provide a buffer and also give you positive convexity if next year turns out better than we think it will. So where does Bitcoin fit in, considering that you were bullish on the asset class not so long oh, ago? you are so cruel. Yeah, well, the look, hey, so again, Lisa, we've talked about this many times, right? Bitcoin is the most cyclical asset on the planet. It goes through meteoric bull markets like it did in 2021. Um, eventually, as demand exhausts itself, uh, supplies inelastic to price, right? So whether Bitcoin's at a million dollars or a dollar, 900 come out a day. And that's the reason you have these huge cycles. So there's really two approaches to owning crypto. And when we talk about crypto, we Bitcoin specifically, either have a tiny allocation in your overall asset uh, mix, ride the, the higher highs and higher lows, or trade the cycle. But clearly, as the Fed continues to tighten monetary policy, um, any directionally long asset is going to have a much more challenging environment well, than it did in 2021. Hold on a second, Troy, because what you're saying right now challenges the sort of existential angst that you hear across the board of people saying Bitcoin's done, it's all a Ponzi scheme, forget about it. And we've heard that from the likes, even of Neil Kashkari of the Federal Reserve. How much are you pushing back against that, saying this is here to stay? And are you among those tracking when there could be a good entry point, not necessarily bailing with all uh, get out? Yeah, look, look, so, I mean, it's same as it ever was, right? Like, Bitcoin has incredible cycles, uh, you know, meteoric gains, whether it's 64x or 32x or 8x in the last cycle, and then 70 to 80% drawdowns, but it always survives because of the strength of the network. Um, so we certainly think Bitcoin will be around for the long haul, uh, but it's very, very volatile. Um, and, you know, most of what's gone on here recently is just bad actors in the space. It really doesn't speak to the negativity or, or negatively reflect on uh, Bitcoin itself. It more uh, reflects negatively on some of the actors that were attracted to the asset class, uh, which is a, a incredibly unfortunate and, and just calls for the fact that we need more regulation, without a doubt. Troy Gasky, thank you so much for the FS Investments.
Seeking timely market and economic updates to help guide client conversations? Look to Nationwide. Nationwide makes simplicity a priority for financial professionals by offering easy access to timely perspectives on changing market conditions, so more time can be focused on helping clients keep their financial plans on track. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, FINRA member, Columbus, Ohio. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication, it's fortitude, and it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years, and it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. Jennifer McKeon, she's just wonderful. She's at a wonderful shop, Capital Economics. Think of them like Axios. Axios came out of media day one. Uh, Jim and Mike were rocking it. Same with Capital Economics. Day one, they published, and everybody took them seriously as they should. Jennifer, you are readjusting in the next year. You bring down the so-called terminal rate. You're ratcheting down your interest rate gas into March of next year. Discuss that. Yeah, for, for the UK, we, we've just reduced our forecast. We had a relatively high peak um, of 5%, and that was partly following the mini-budget, the fiscal stimulus that we saw coming at, at that time. We've just revised that peak down to 4.5% um, next year, partly, uh, partly because of that fiscal stimulus not <laughs> coming and, in fact, turning to tightening, albeit, albeit a bit later on. Partly also because we're seeing some signs that perhaps the labour market isn't quite as tight at, as it was. There are some signs in um, surveys of wage negotiations of a bit of a let up. Uh, so we're not quite right. as worried about the inflation. Can picture. you take it over globally? Can you look at a, a misguess here of a higher terminal rate will be off the mark next year? Yeah, well, we thought for a long time that um, the, the U.S. terminal rate will be a bit lower than is priced in, into markets. We have a terminal rate of um, four, of four seven five to five um, there. Um, I, I think in the U.S. we're seeing much clearer evidence of price pressures easing up, and that the U.K. seems to be following suit a little bit in, in that regard. So the uh, labour market's not as tight as it was. There are signs in um, some of the PPI elements that U.S. consumer price inflation is going to come down further. So, so we, we're pretty confident that the peak isn't too far off in the US, despite the fact that officials still sounding hawkish. Jennifer, I, I got to say, I got I to gotta kind of bother Tom here because he's raising questions about what we're cooking and that we might cook eagle, which is an endangered <laughs> species, and then, uh, you know, catching me um, off guard. So I will catch you off guard and say, at this point, is the better than bad news in Europe very bad news for what the ECB has to do for ECB officials to come out and hike more than people previously expected in the face of perhaps uh, better, stronger economic output? 
Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I draw limited encouragement from from the recent European data. Industrial production has been a bit more resilient. Um, retail sales too. Some of that's temporary factors. There are some statistical quirks in the Irish data that have been driving up eurozone industrial production. And also, I think there's simply a lag before. Remember, the ECB's not been hiking rates for long. There's going to be a lag before the the effects of the tightening of financial conditions start to come through. Also, the surveys, the, the PMIs we had this morning offered a, a, a little bit of relief, a slight uptick, but they're still pointing to falls in, in Eurozone GDP. So I think we are still heading into a recession. There's less evidence in the Eurozone of a let up in price pressures. So I think the ECB is going to need to continue um, hiking. So it, it is generally a pretty, pretty bad picture um, from the Eurozone's perspective. Let's be optimistic for a second. Let's say China reopens, supply chains are normalized. How much of a boon does that give to Europe with both potentially lower uh, supply chain pressures and higher economic activity. Yeah, that's a good point. I'm, I'm not sure it does give a, a massive boost, although during China's lockdowns, it's made huge efforts to keep to keep ports open, to keep industrial production going. So the implications for global supply chains haven't been as, as large as you might expect. Of course, with virus numbers still picking up in, in China, I think 80 cities now affected. It's, it's looking as bad as, as the first wave um, of the virus. So it seems very unlikely really now that we're going to see the, the reopening that people were hoping for just a couple of weeks ago. I, I look, Jennifer, just very quickly here. The turmoil is centered on a stunning headline, one of the great headlines of Bloomberg this year. The governor of the Bank of England modeling a two-year recession. How does he extricate himself from that? Does he amend that into next year? Um, well, yeah, it's a, it's, yes, if the data start to look um, persistently better, but but I think on on the UK front, to um, retail sales, although they they rose a little bit in the in the latest data, they they've not um, reversed the previous falls, and I think there's more there's more to come. So I think probably um, Andrew Bailey is right to expect a, a fairly right. deep recession in the UK. We're expecting about a two percent peak to trough fall, which would be mm-hmm. which would be quite weak. But of, of course. If the data continue to surprise on the upside, then he can recalibrate that and it would be well received. Optimism we need on a Wednesday. Thank you, Jennifer McEwing, so much at Capital Economics. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more.